If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Hope Gurian. Hope was the chief product officer of CareerBuilder, the SVP of product at Beachbody, and led multiple verticals at AOL. Today, Hope coaches product leaders and teams seeking to grow through customer-centric, evidence-based strategies. She's led almost 50 product teams in her career in both consumer and B2B companies. She also hosts one of my favorite product podcasts, Fearless Product Leadership, where she helps other product leaders shorten their learning curves and is often referred to as fearless but friendly, and I think you'll see why in this conversation. In this conversation, we talk about the things that nobody tells you about product leadership, the root causes of many dysfunctional product organizations, hint, it's at the executive level, how to get over the fear of saying no and coming across as mean to other people so that you can do your best work, and Hope even shares some of her battle stories from the front lines of doing organizational transformations, both what has and more importantly, what hasn't worked. In short, this conversation is full of gold that anyone working in or around the leadership of a product organization needs to know. So without any further ado, please enjoy learning with Hope Gurian. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. This is so fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we had the pleasure of meeting through um, your work with Teresa Torres and uh, some of the great coaching work you're doing there. It's just been really fun to get to know you and her a little bit and start to understand your worldview a little bit. So I am totally stoked to bring you on the show and get to share some of that, that hope lens that you look through the world at with this audience, because I think we could all use a little bit more of it. We'll try. We'll try. Um, yeah, no, Teresa has been a great partner and friend over a number of years. And so, um, and as you can see from getting the chance to work with her, like there's nobody else I'd rather work with. So super fun. And I'm glad you're enjoying it. The two of you make a dynamic duo. I know we're going to talk about this a lot more in the course of this conversation, but I have had quite a few guests on this show talk to me about the similarities they find between doing product especially product leadership and parenting. And I'm curious, what do you see there? <laughs> well, it's funny. I remember years ago uh, when I was um, leading a product team, I actually, we would do quarterly meetings and we would go through a whole bunch of stuff. But um, I remember distinctly giving a speech to one of, of my, my teams at the time using the parenting analogy. <laughs> and it went off the rails quick because essentially I was like, like you are taking this thing, you know, it's you're responsible for it. You you have to nurture it. You want to let it reach its full potential and you need to guide it on its way and help it make good decisions, make good decisions on behalf of it. And then I had to go into, and then when that's not working out so well, you may risk your child getting taken away from you. And so that's where it went off the rails. So I think there are definitely similarities. And I think there's obviously a lot of differences. Like I think you can have far more objective measures uh, driving your decision making in product. And I feel like anytime I try to apply objective measures to how my parenting is going, it's very difficult to do so but the kids are surviving, they're thriving. I think they see a silver lining in this and that um, they're getting to play more video games than I've ever let them play. So <laughs> kids and dogs are having the greatest year ever. They're not so bothered they get to hang out with their people all the time. And we got a pandemic puppy too. How does that occur? You just randomly were like, we're getting a dog or what happened? Well, I had a plan. First of all, my youngest son is very convincing. And I was like, well, our 
previous excuse of all the travel that we did no longer holds water. But then I also don't really want the responsibility of a pet when my kids leave the house. So my plan was to get a seven-year-old cat for like low effort, low maintenance. And then when my youngest leaves and goes to college, I would have too much more of a lifespan to deal with this animal. (laughs) And then my husband was like, I don't want a cat. I think we should get a dog. And not just a dog, like, because we did look at like a rescue and uh, and they're all, uh, the shelters are cleared out. Um, And so we ended up going on Craigslist. There were like two puppies that looked kind of cute within driving distance and one responded to us. And then we Next thing you know, you got a dog. Our way to Sacramento and got this puppy. So all of a sudden, it was like an impulse buy. And literally, while we're driving there, we were Googling, <laughs> oh, it's hypoallergenic. Oh, that's so great. Um, Like, what does it need? But <laughs> then we stopped at like the pet store and like literally the most clueless people going into the pet store, just grabbing whatever <laughs> the salesperson wanted to recommend to us. So it was a good day. We're going to sort of you know shift gears a little bit here and start to talk a lot more about product and about product leadership. I used to think that I was looking for the answers. I was looking for the answers of like, okay, just how should we do this thing? How should we design the organization? How should we, whatever. I was like looking for playbooks and I found them. There's a lot of them. They're really good. And then I was like, wait a minute. So we have all these answers, but nothing's different. What's broken here? Mm-hmm. Where that led was to exactly this idea of like, how do you actually change organizations? And I, at this point, I'm kind of convinced it might be the hardest problem in business. And you are someone who has done a lot of this. So Hope, what is your secret? How do you do this? Let me just say that I, well, I shouldn't say never, but you would be hard pressed to convince me to take on an org transformation leadership role full time these days because of how hard it is and how much status quo bias there is and how many people have to be convinced that it is worse in the status quo and they're willing to abandon it in order to be even open-minded about what's required for that transformation. So I could tell you I've had some very positive experiences and I can tell you that I've abandoned ship because it is not for the meek. What do you see as like the patterns of when it's got a shot and when it's doomed? I feel like that could save people years of their life of mm-hmm. like, I'm walking into something that is yeah. like, this one's done. There's no saving this one. How do you tell? So I actually did some research on this because I had to figure out, and I'll um, I'll send you the link to uh, a, a research study on this. And it's not so much about org transformation, but it's about behavior change. Which, at the end of the day, like that's what it is. I'm used to one way of doing things. I'm very comfortable in it. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I feel kind of like I'm an expert at it. And now you're telling me to abandon all of that because you're want me to believe that this future state that I can't really picture so well is better for me and better for the company. And that requires like a huge leap of faith for most people to make. Um, And so what I found is there's actually these elements. And so the more of these elements that you can identify, and not all of them are very easy to identify in advance, more of these that exist in the situation that you're considering, the Mm -hmm. higher probability of success, but in no way is it a guarantee. So number one, is pain in the status quo. Real pain. Like usually, like we're losing market share, people are leaving, uh, our products aren't succeeding. Like you've got to feel really uncomfortable. If you're cruising along, even if your competitors are gaining traction, if you still feel like we're fine, 
that's not pain in the status quo. Okay. So you've got to be looking for deep pain. And that might be the most important ingredient. This is probably like the thing you truly must have. Without this, nothing else is going to happen. Nothing matters. Yep. Nothing matters. Um, The second is that like you've got to have, and when I say you, the organization not the person coming in who's supposed to be the savior or the person who's going to teach everybody a new way of doing things. Um, the people at the leadership of the organization, and frankly, the most people in the company have to have a clear picture of what that better future looks like. So if there's people within a company who have operated, so like if we're talking about product, you know, are familiar with what it means to actually do continuous discovery with customers who wouldn't dream of releasing their product to customers without really knowing why it solved the problem better than their alternatives. Um, if you don't have enough people in the leadership and really scattered in almost every department in the company who have actually experienced the better future, then you're going to be hard-pressed to have enough people to sustain all the changes required as you're trying to transform away from the status quo to that better future. So you need to have clear picture of what that better future is, but better if it's actually been experienced and lived by many people throughout the organization. So that's not always easy to figure out. So if you're going into an organization, you've got to do a lot of interviewing at all levels and really try to understand how present that is in everybody's minds. Mm. Another element of this is you need that buy-in from the top. People will fall back to old habits if they don't see that it is being reinforced, mm-hmm. encouraged, because there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. And so you want to see that that top-down leadership, like they are desperate to get away from the status quo and um, and eager to get to that better future. And then um, you want to make sure you've got all the things that most people look to mm-hmm. first, which you notice I'm not mentioning them first, but all the processes, skills, tools, capabilities, knowledge, you know, of course you need those things. But none of those will thrive and take hold if you don't have those other elements in place at your organization. Talk to me about how you, you know, you fast track this change of hearts and minds, right? Like if someone doesn't have these core beliefs already, mm-hmm. how do you fast track that that kind of change, especially you know, in some of the situations you've been in, you've kind of, I feel like you've kind of seen it from all the sides where you've been in the organization, but you, now you've also seen it as someone external to the organization coming in as a facilitator, as a coach, as a consultant, uh, whatever the role may be. So how do you, how do you do that fast tracking? Yeah. So what I have found to be the fastest way is to have um, the executive team actually see their products and experiences through their target customer's eyes. Hmm. So what does that look like? Usually it's not pretty. Um, So I'll tell you a story about um, an experience that I had because I was really struggling. So when I was at uh, Career Builder, we had had Kagan, Marty Kagan come in. We had a lot of um, different people coming in doing trainings with my team, Jeff Gotthelf and others. And so it wasn't, I was focusing on those knowledge, skills, abilities, tools, processes Mm -hmm. with my team. And, you know, most of the rest of the organization was, we know exactly what to do. Just, you know, why are you delaying the inevitable? Let's just get to the these things that we already know that we want to do and just go ahead and deliver them already. And so what I did is I got my executive team. So CEO, COO, head of sales, um, head of technology, um, head of marketing. So really all the sort of C-suite. 
And, and it took, I started with the CEO. I said, you know, I really feel like we need to see our products the way our customers see them. And uh, I had to convince my CEO that if we got 10 people in a room, that that would be a good use of time for him. Mm-hmm. And so it couldn't just be any 10 people, right? It had to be people who fit the criteria that we most cared about in terms of attracting customers. And for CareerBuilder at the time, we had a lot of demand in the healthcare space mm-hmm. from employers mm-hmm. and a shortage because of the nature of the employment market, a shortage of healthcare workers. I said, you know, we could get like software engineers, we get 10 software engineers in a room, we could get, um, you know, 10 accountants in a room. But when I said, what if we got like 10 healthcare workers in a room? He's like, okay, if we can spend a day seeing how 10 healthcare workers feel about our products, I will show up and spend a day with you for that. And of course, you know how it is with the other C-levels. If the CEO is saying he's going to be locked yep. in a room for a day, Everyone and it's worth his too. time... <laughs> They're coming too. So we um, we set it up in one of those, uh, you know, almost like a focus group room. And it wasn't a focus group. Don't get me wrong. It was just so that we could have that sort of we're behind the mirror observing. And so we had a, a facilitator essentially, you know, talk to people, pharmacist, nurse, um, a variety of healthcare related workers coming in. Um, and they were all on the market for a job. Mm-hmm. And one by one, they they basically were introduced by this facilitator. Say, okay, you know, I know you're in the market for a job. Why don't you take a look? Um, since we're here, we've got time. Why don't you just go ahead and, and start your job search? And one by one, guess how many started their job search on Career Builder? I'm guessing zero. Zero. Oh, that's gotta hurt. Zero. I loved it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, this I mean, is in like a good the best way. thing that happened <laughs> in the best possible way. And so, and you like, and I, obviously I, I didn't know these people. I didn't tell them to do this. This was not a plant. Started in Google. It was not a plant. Um, They started in Google. They started uh, on Indeed. They started, you know, uh, actually one started on Yelp because she cared. She was a physical therapist, cared so much about working for a high, like very reputable company that offered great care to people that that's where she looked first. Interesting. So it was so enlightening because then when they eventually, you know, we kind of encouraged them to, well, why don't you check out Career Builder and what do you think? And they saw in the job listings, even when they did healthcare searches, very few healthcare jobs came up. Ooh. And we had tons of healthcare job listings on our site. Why do you think hardly any came up? Um, any let's see. So you had a bunch of supply, but it wasn't showing up in the searches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. could be they were tagged, you know, the, the information was categorized the way the people internal to the company thought it should be categorized, but that didn't match the external categorization. Yeah. We, I think we had a very weak search algorithm uh-huh. and we also had a lot of keyword stuffers oh. in our job listings. So the job listings were easily manipulated by the employers. And so what you saw was a lot of like work from home sales, which they would buy unlimited job postings because we would sell that very large package of job listings to people. Anyway, and so what it created in a single day was highlighting the worst features of our product and watching like our target customer reject it, you know, one after another. Mm. And it was the fastest way that I could not just me telling the story secondhand of all these problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was our executive team seeing, seeing the future about to evaporate if we don't address 
these critical issues in our business and in our product and the way we approach products and what we enable. And so that to me was the best use of time and the fastest way to convince people that I know you think you're doing a good job and that we're making good decisions. But if this is the future state that we're looking at, this is clearly the current state. So what are we going to do differently so that our future is that people want to begin their job search on CareerBuilder and that they want to continue to trust their you know professional choices with us. So anyway, that's an example of how I found it to be a fast track. It's that firsthand customer understanding and getting the executive team kind of trapped in a room to view it. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's almost like, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm reminded I was just happened to be reviewing a bunch of jobs to be done material uh, the other day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you almost inverted that and like applied it to the executive team, right? You almost like made, you just sort of got them in this situation where they're experiencing the push, the pull and the inertia and the friction and just like in this unavoidable way where it's just creating agony for them. Yeah. <laughs> what a ninja yes. move. And it was, um, and, I, and I didn't know that it was going, I mean, I, had a sense because we'd done customer discovery. I knew where the problems were, but I didn't know what was going to show up. And they were uncomfortable. Like they started to trickle out. Oh, oh, I got, I have to go take this really important call. And, you know, but the rest of the product and engineering teams and UX teams were there. And, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Wow. So tell me a little bit about a, um, I want to, I'd like you to tell me the story about a quote I heard you share in one of your talks, a uh, fantastic talk we're going to link to, by the way, uh, in, the, in the show notes called um, uh, Why You Can't Be a Good Girl and a Great Product Leader, which is a fantastic talk. Uh, we're going to go into that in a minute. Thank you. One of the quotes you shared in there that I think seems relevant to this, and I'd love you to tell the story of, is something that mm-hmm. I think you said it was the COO or another one of the VPs at, the, at this level mm-hmm. said that was something mm-hmm. to the effect of, I'm sick of discovery. It's time to start delivering. Yeah, that that legit happened. Um, and again, these are, this is the like, you know, bias towards the status quo it feels like it's getting in the way of doing the things that we know we must do um, and not really being willing to question whether or not we have all of our assumptions correct. And so this was at a company, um, Beachbody, where again, I went in as the first head of product, they had products, they had product managers, they had the the roles, the titles, but they didn't have um, the, I don't know, the knowledge, the skills, the ability, and frankly, they didn't have the buy-in from leadership. Mm-hmm. And so they were clearly a project management organization, managing delivery. And, uh, you know, it's just one of these things that over time, I just, I can't waste my time on stupid shit. Mm. I just, I'm at the point in my life where it just, I I don't care. Like if you want to waste your time doing stupid things, just go do it. I, I don't care. You don't need me here. But if you're asking me to come in and do a job, then we're going to like get all these assumptions out and we're going to figure out what needs to be true to deliver on this result. And if you're not up for that, then I'm probably not the right person to work with. Um, and this was one of those moments where this was a guy who, you know, he didn't hire me, he didn't bring me in, but I, you know, essentially was supposed to be his partner. And while I was trying to increase the probability of this, this thing that they wanted to do to, I don't even remember the scenario, it was something like they wanted to uh, increase the ability to get I don't know, products shipped into, I don't even remember the situation. You talked about, um, they really wanted his, his big goal was he wanted to integrate with some sort of management, like a MDS oh, system yes. or something. 
Yes, yes. They wanted to get all these like, um, yeah, all these different shipping companies to be integrated so that they could expedite getting their their products shipped. And not that expediting shipping is not like unreasonable, but the the level of effort versus return was not obvious. And, you know, uh, in product, you've got opportunity cost with every single decision that you make and choose not to make. And so by exploring the different alternatives, we could see that like this actually wasn't going to be a good use of time. Um, And so we ended up the COO who was in the room at the time having this discussion, like saw this really awkward confrontation between the two of us because he was like, I'm sick of discovery, let's start delivering. And I'm like, this is I don't even, I wish I could remember right now what I said. Um, I was like, look, this is not the way it's going to go. Like, I want to make sure that we're making a good choice. And you're basically saying, like, ignore the facts and just do what I'm telling you to do. And I, I'm not here to just do what you think we should do. And so luckily, the COO, um, who also didn't stay at the company very long, um, or at least not, not, I left shortly after he did. Um, was like, no, this, we have to make good choices. Like we're here to be responsible and treat the company like it's our, you know, it, it's our own. We need to make good choices here. And so it turned from a power struggle into, you know, a, a sort of a moment of recognition for both of us that like it, either we're going to do our jobs in a way that is in the best interest of the company and, and our limited resources, or it's going to be a power play where there's sort of a dictatorship from certain departments to other departments. And I, I feel like that is really not a healthy environment and not one that I will ever work in. So here's one that I'm curious about. So did you know that it was going to be like that walking into that gig at Beachbody? Oh, I did not know it. I mean, I knew that there was going to be challenges, but when I felt like I had done this to a certain degree before, and I feel like I'm generally a pretty easy going, like pretty easy to get along nah. with person. <laughs> totally <laughs> um, I really didn't expect it to be as hostile as it was. Yeah. Um, and it was an interesting dynamic that I really haven't seen at other companies. There was so much deference to the CEO. Hmm. That if you weren't really there to be like the people who last were, you know, yes men, Mm -hmm. they were yes men and women, but they were yes men and women. And what's, what's funny is, and so the company was going downhill, like it really was now pandemic time. I think the company's probably doing really great right now. (laughs) Everybody's working out at home, but at the time, like they really, they struggled and they had made a lot of you know, poor decisions just based on not really willing to challenge the beliefs uh, and the assumptions of the of the CEO. And I can remember one thing was I was there, I started in April, and then literally like 365 days later left. But there was a, a real belief that was unfounded that even though our business is going down, we are going to have a rebound in the new year when everybody goes back to ordering their new year, new body, like, you know, new year, new year products Mm -hmm. from all the infomercials that we'll be running. Mm. And this is a few years ago. Maybe now people are watching infomercials because they're not going out anywhere. But for the most part, like the the rebound of infomercials didn't come back. Yeah. Especially given all the trends in like media media consumption, right? Like everyone's going over the top. Like why would they be watching infomercials? Everyone's doing Netflix and streaming and blah, blah, blah. A million other things. So anyway, it's just like that to me just epitomizes that there was just like not really a willingness to have those hard conversations and challenge 
the assumptions that were underlying a lot of decisions going on. And I just find that a stifling, unhealthy environment to work in. So anyway, that's part of the reason that I ended up going out on my own is when I left that situation, I was really... And there were a couple of other opportunities that came up to do more transformation work. And I was like, hell to the no. Like (laughs) I don't want to do that. Yeah. I've heard you say that you that you believe in truth, transparency, and math. And it sounds like anyone yes. who wants to work with you needs to already believe in those things, or it's just not a good yeah. fit. Yeah. It's not going to be a good fit. We're not <laughs> going to get along. I might I might like you. I might want to have a drink with you, but we're probably not going to be able to make good choices together. I totally feel... I, I have felt that pain. At, at, not to this extent, but at, at times in my own life, I've, I've felt that pain. And it's often left me wondering, you know, to your point that one of these things you've got to have to change a culture basically, is that buy-in from the top. It's interesting to me that most people fall into the trap I fell into, which is they go to work on the toolbox, not the person holding the toolbox. Maybe that's backwards. Yeah, because it feels like it's more actionable. And people, I think, do want to focus on where they have the most influence and control. Like that's where people have you know autonomy and mm-hmm. uh, and feel empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, when you're talking about, you know, an organization is... It is an entity and Mm -hmm. largely um, it's very difficult to change from the bottoms up. Like you can have pockets of change and pilots and different things. um, But ultimately, if people don't recognize there's a problem in the status quo, which goes back to like the very first thing, if people don't feel sufficient pain... There's not really motivation, open-mindedness to doing things differently. So if you can't, if you're not feeling that at the at the upper levels of the organization, people are going to just try to ride it out as long as they can yeah. until they start flaying. How do you check for that now? Like when you're, let's say somebody comes to you and they want to work with you, you know, let's say it's a, a product exec at some company. I am sure that there have been people who've come up to you and said, hope we're perfect. Let's do this. But they're really not. And how do you tell the difference between the people who are sincerely ready mm-hmm. and the people who are just saying the right thing? Yeah. Well, so for me, my risk is a lot lower now, right? Like if people are willing to change and really want help along the way, and oftentimes that's what we're doing with product teams, uh, especially in the coaching work that I'm doing with Teresa, it's usually that there's already been this level of leadership buy-in and they're they're ready to get sort of, you know, the tools and techniques and processes, and they really want to empower their teams, but they can't offer that directly to their teams. So it's sort of, we come in a little bit later. When people um, have asked me to do consulting work with a, a leadership team, what I usually try to do is say, well, let's start small so that we can both see if we're a good fit, if we can, you know, if we're going to really work together. So let's set some tangible goals for what we feel like we want to accomplish. And let's see if we make progress. And if we're, if it's trending in the right direction and we want to extend, great. If not, no big deal. And that's how I try to de-risk it for both of us. I want to go back to, um, a key point from a, from that talk I was mentioning of yours earlier. Yeah. And in that talk, you, you talk specifically about what you call good girl syndrome. But mm-hmm. I think that kind of, you can, we can generalize that a little bit, uh, to something that a lot of people, and I certainly have dealt with as well, which is this, this wanting to be liked, to be accepted, this feeling mm-hmm. of if I'm just nice, it'll all work out or whatever. And the sad truth is it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is, mm-hmm. how do you coach people through that process? Cause it's not easy. Yeah. So I will say that like, for the most part, the coaching work that I do that usually does not, it's usually not the barrier for most people. Although the way to 
take yourself out of those situations and those feelings of discomfort when you know that somebody's always going to be unhappy. It doesn't matter what the decision, mm-hmm. somebody is going to be unhappy, right? Like that, that we cannot satisfy everybody equally, every stakeholder equally, every customer segment equally, like impossible. So when you enable people to set up the criteria to make good decisions and you point at the criteria, it takes some of the pressure and the burden off the need to feel liked or to feel that your identity is associated with the outcome of that decision. And this is one of the ways that I try to help people disassociate their own feelings of wanting to be liked um, with how do I make good choices for my team, for the company on behalf of customers so that we can, you know, move forward. Um, And, you know, you also don't have to be the person to make that decision. You just need to frame the decision that has to be made and get the right inputs to help people arrive at the right conclusion. Talk to me a little bit more about that because it seems like that making good decisions sounds so simple, right? How hard could that be? Yet <laughs> doesn't it, want to make good decisions. Yeah, right? Everybody wants that. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet here we are. But mm-hmm. What are some of those things? Like how do you, you know, let's say you enter into a company as on a, on some sort of client engagement and you're working with a team mm-hmm. and you're saying, okay, and they're totally willing to they're legit willing mm-hmm. to change and do the work. Mm-hmm. How do you coach them through that? I mean, what's the starting point or the first first couple things you want to put in place to enable these conditions? So the number one thing I literally ask it on every single prospective client call is what are your goals? Mm-hmm. And I, it is shocking how rare it is for people to have goals. Mm. Meaning like, what are the goals? Not like, what are your goals for your life or whatever? It's what what is your company expecting you to contribute in terms of value, you or your team? What is the company's expectation for the goals of its employees? Uh, it, it is shocking how rarely these are defined. You know, with all the OKR talk and everything, it is very rare that I find. And maybe it's just the people who are, who are dropped to working with me. It's, it's like Rich Marinoff said to me when uh, in, so Rich was on the show early on <laughs> yeah. and, and I asked him a similar question. I don't remember exactly what it was. And he said, look, I get the calls where it's messed up. So I don't know what the good ones look like. <laughs> He's like, well, I know what they, I know what they look like, but they don't talk to me very much anymore. Yeah, <laughs> he's hilarious. I so anyway, so that to me is like why this is so difficult for people because they are really not clear what a good decision is. Mm. So they end up like, well, what? I guess here's my judgment about what a good decision is, or you know, I trust these people at my company, and they seem to think that this is the right decision, and so it gets really murky. And this is why I think people meander and teams meander because it's just not clear. And a lot of times, it does come back to the executive team who have these financial goals, totally legit. It's a business. Mm-hmm. We want to hit our metrics: revenue, EBITDA, you know, growth, totally completely makes sense. And that is not sufficiently defined for all the rest of the functions to be able to see how they fit into that picture and what they can contribute and how what they do interacts with, complements, contradicts what another group in their company is doing. And when it's not explicit, you get these, you know, very awkward conversations, vague goals, because nobody is really willing to pin it down to I'm setting this as their target because this is going to achieve this and I need these other teams to do this. And it is a cop-out, I think, for a lot of leaders who aren't taking the time and effort to 
deconstruct those business goals into things that people can own within their company and feel a lot of purpose around their pursuit of achieving those goals. Yeah, I know you and Teresa just launched a course on this recently. Uh, I think it's the, the sort of the brand new outcomes course. So what are, you know, obviously this is what the whole course is about, so you can't cover it here, Mm -hmm. but what are those lead dominoes? So for me, what's usually lacking um, is that there isn't this shared view of the system at work that everybody is operating in. It could be the customer journey. It could be the ways that, that teams are operating together. But there's a, like... And it's silly because it's like, well, well, we work together. You're in product. I'm in customer success. Like we know how our teams work together. It's so obvious. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not like you don't, nobody can see the whole together. And so how can we figure out how we want to change the pieces of this puzzle uh, if we cannot see the same pieces together. Mm. And so what I try to do is help people at least create an illustration of what that system looks like. So typically in a product area, but I got to tell you, it's really at the company level. Like how do we look at the whole of what we're doing and usually having the customer view is the common thread. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so maybe you don't see, maybe you should see, but maybe it doesn't really matter, you know, uh, how the accounting department, you know, is balancing the books and dealing with, you know, invoices. I don't know. But if it does matter, then you should have a way to illustrate that at the company level where everybody can see how they fit into the system and how making a change over here is either going to positively or negatively impact somebody over here. And so having that customer view to me is like the first thing because then we can actually have an informed conversation about, oh, so you're telling me because this happens a lot. So the customer support team is going to, their success is going to be measured on retention or maybe upsell, you know, who knows. But the sales team is going to be focused on new logo growth. Mm-hmm. And the product team is supposed to support both. Mm. So how, how are we going to do that exactly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it that we've subdivided our product teams to be able to say, okay, well, we're going to do all these things that are preventing customers from buying us so that we look good when we're responding to, you know, new client proposals and demos? Or are we going to do the things that actually retain customers longer? Mm-hmm. Like get them to use more of the product because they're two totally different goals. Yep. And if you're, just looking at the, it makes sense for the customer support team to focus on retention and the sales team to focus on net new growth. And then you leave it up to the product team to figure out, oh, they have to focus on revenue. Well, then how do you know where you've got the most leverage and where you should be putting your attention so that you can actually navigate that conversation? Because if you focus on retention, all those new logo salespeople are not going to be thrilled with your choice and vice versa. If you're focusing on growth and net new customers and your customer support team is like band-aiding together a bunch of stuff that your product doesn't do well, they're going to be unhappy. So it's, it's not enough to just have goals that you develop within your department. You really need to look at, well, what is the whole system expected to accomplish and where are we complementing or contradicting each other? Um, And the healthier that you're able to have those conversations, you can say, you know what, for the first half of the year, we got to focus on new deals. And maybe the second half of the year, we'll focus on like retention or vice versa. But you've got to be able to make that choice at the executive level so that people in all those departments can set the right goals within the realm of influence to support the way that you're expected to achieve those financial outcomes. 
in a lot of ways, it's it's also just a either a lack of or just bad strategy, right? Yeah. The same way you said it's shocking how few people uh, and organizations really have goals. I've also found it shocking how few have any anything that I would actually call a strategy. They have a plan, maybe, but in mm-hmm. terms of a strategy, those seem few and far between. Um, yes. And I'm curious, like, you know, because you've worked in so many contexts. I mean, I think you've led like f- almost 50 product teams in your life and, and multiple yep. f- whole, you know, full blown pl- product orgs. So I know you've, you've seen this a lot when you go into somewhere or when you were doing this before. How do you solve that problem? Like, how do you go to work on that on saying, okay, we need a real strategy, not just like this thing with it might as well be done in crayons? Right. Yeah. And it's, um, people, it is unfortunate. Like people think because they have set financial targets um, and because they've got, you know, a, a sense of what value propositions they want to bring into the market, um, that that is sufficient. Um, and maybe they throw some mission statements in there to make people feel good. Like it is not a, enough of a strategic context for the very hard choices that are going to be made. Um, and again, unfortunately, I find that the product teams end up bearing the brunt of this mm-hmm. because it's really hard to make uh, like any sort of concrete decisions about we're going to go after this customer base versus that customer base. We're going to focus on this moment in the journey versus that moment. And we're going to focus on this success metric and not this success metric. If you don't have that umbrella of that strategic context, because otherwise it just seems like you are making choices, but not actually doing it in a way that the rest of those higher level decisions have already been bought into in the organization. And so if you haven't set that stage, you're going to be doing a lot of like hand to hand combat every time you try to get those decisions to, you know, gain traction and momentum. Um, So I'm not a huge like, oh, we need to have some like, you know, hefty, hefty PowerPoint strategy. But like, I do think like, even a lean canvas. I find a lot of the product leaders that I work with, like even just to get their executive team to put some stickies on like a whiteboard of a lean canvas template and see if they themselves even see the target market the same way, see the value proposition the same way, you know, see how they what their competitive threats are. Do they see those the same way? A lot of that aligning amongst the executive team no, nobody's responsible for it, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if the CEO's not doing it, then the product leader kind of has to do it yeah. because otherwise they don't have the strategic context in which to have that umbrella for the rest of the decisions they have to make. So that's what I usually have people do is really just like, let's just start with lean canvas mm-hmm. and let's individually see how we answer these questions and let's see if we actually see it all the same way. And we've just documented something that we already knew in our minds and we were very aligned on, or we actually see that we see it very differently. And now we are teeing up a conversation to make a choice. This value proposition, that value proposition, this competitor, that competitor, this target market, that target market. I want to shift gears slightly here. And I want to almost invert the perspective because we, a lot of the root cause of what we're talking about here, unfortunately, is I'm just going to call it bluntly bad executive teams, right? Teams that are just exec teams that are not doing it right uh, to set up everybody else in the organization to be successful. Could do it better for sure. Okay. We'll, we'll do, we'll say that. Okay. They could do it better. <laughs> <laughs> Room for growth. Let's say that. Way. I told you I'm, I'm looking for silver linings. I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> So that's that's true. But many people who are going to hear this, unfortunately, are not going to be the people who need to hear it. But they're going to be people 
be the people in the organization who are unfortunately at the effect of these teams, these exec teams that shall we say could be better. Um, mm-hmm. What can they do about it, right? Whether that's managing up differently, but like if you're someone who's not playing at the exec level right now, mm-hmm. what resources, what what plays, you know, what what can they do to make their their part of the world better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I like to shine a bright light on the um, contradictions. So is it, um, you know, we have 37 priorities and you've just added a 38th. So I'm trying to figure out, are we moving something off the board or we're just layering on? Does that mean that if people spent 40 hours a week, it works out to be, I don't know what that is. You know, everybody spends 15 minutes per priority (laughs) each week. And now we're saying we're going to spend it like 13 and a half minutes so that we can get this 38th one in. Like, I think it is incumbent upon people to say, like, I really am trying to make a good choice in the best interest of the company and make good use of my time. And yet this is, this is the scenarios that I can Mm. foresee here Mm -hmm. and try to tee that up to help people either see that it's ludicrous or that they can actually um, present an option that hopefully their boss will say yes to, and they will then make the situation a little bit better for themselves uh, and, and the rest of the organization. But I think you have to, you can't, dance around it. Like you kind of need to make it as plain and obvious as possible. We're recording this in, in uh, July, but just just recently mm-hmm. you did a breakout session, I think, at uh, Mind the Product. Um, mm-hmm. And it was all about what no one told you about being a product leader. And so I have mm-hmm. kind of a two-part question about this. First of all, okay. Uh, what was the you know the most the biggest takeaway you had from that? Like just listening to what people mm-hmm. had to say. And secondly, mm-hmm. what did no one tell you about being a product leader? <laughs> no, no one told me anything. Uh, <laughs> it was totally trial and error. Okay, let's see. What did people say? Well, um, for better or for worse, many many people had experienced some of the issues that I that I talked about. So, like for example, um, you know, everybody wants to ask about cost, but nobody understands the concept of opportunity cost. Mm. Like that is, I, I think, a very common situation, um, and it, it's still one that I struggle with today. Like, how do I help people understand? the concept of opportunity cost, Hmm. like versus how many weeks is this going to take and how many people and how much headcount do you need? And, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's like that is more tangible, more concrete, more similar to conversations they're having with other departments and like how to tell, like how to convince people that opportunity cost is real. (laughs) Like it's very challenging for people to wrap their heads around. How do I quantify it? How do I know that that's not just an idea, an economic concept, and actually something that could crater our company if we invest in the wrong things and invest too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for me as a product leader, I feel like um, the the need for a lot of shared understanding about each other's roles and departments and customers like is i think the biggest blind spot that a lot of product leaders have that they um they want to enable their teams they want to give people goals like they want to do these things and unfortunately there's such different understanding of what the role is what it's responsible for because so many people have either never experienced it at the companies they've worked at um especially if they're not sort of like tech first companies um or they 
have experienced it in sort of a negative way. Like I hear people talk about all the time, oh yeah, like we used to have a head of product and he sort of like went all in on his vision and and then like we're now basically like in the rubble of that mm. and trying to dig our way out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've got these sometimes very negative connotations of what it could be to work with product. And you're now trying to convince them that it'll be different this time mm-hmm. and it'll be better this time. And they're scarred, right? So maybe they understand the concept of opportunity cost a little bit better. But that's that's unfortunate for anybody who's in a product leader role at a company, especially if you're new going into a company, because without you, and this was one of my points in the talk, like if you haven't had a deep understanding of all the different um, perspectives from your peers and, and partners on the leadership team, very difficult for you to be effective. Even if you've got the best team and the best capabilities and the best product roadmap, if you really are not um, able to have those conversations and navigate those conversations and create the same, like the right level of detail for all those different audiences and understand their needs, their points of view, what they need to be successful, very difficult for you to enable your team to be successful or for you to be successful. No one teaches you how to do this, but without it, you're, you're, you're screwed. Yeah. Like, and, and you kind of have to be, I mean, it's kind of like a, a, your own version of discovery, right? Like you need to understand not just what your customers care about and what their alternatives are, but you need to do this. You're head of finance. You're, you're you know, obviously maybe head of engineering is something that you're more familiar with, but, you know, marketing and sales, yeah. and this is where operations and support, like there's a lot of other functional leaders who if you really can't like spend a day in their shoes, it's very hard for you to have a good partnership with those teams. And so I think that's something that um, I know earlier on in my career, I probably didn't invest enough time in. And so when I had a chance to, you know, sort of reset and start again, I actually made that a part of my like conscious practice of like, I when I, when I went to Beachbody, I'm like, I'm spending a day in the customer support team and really getting to know them, getting to know their leaders so that they see that I care about their team's needs. Same true with like the coach team. Like I, I want to see like, what is it like? I'm on the phone with coaches. Like I need to know what it is that you're dealing with. And so the more that you do that, I think as a product leader, the easier it'll be for you to have those meaningful conversations and hard conversations because you're going to make somebody unhappy. Mm-hmm. Just a matter of who and when. And I think that is, you know, you don't necessarily get a chance to really understand everybody's functional role. How are sales plans set? What are the incentive plans? Like if you're not familiar with that, you could get blindsided in terms of how you're approaching your product roadmap and what people are incented to sell versus not incented to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, it's just, it's super important for you as a leader to be an expert in a lot of different things. Maybe expert is too extreme. You have to be pretty knowledgeable about a lot of parts of the organization to be able to contribute in the way that I think product leaders are expected to contribute value to their companies. We're going to start to close out here with some, some rapid fire questions, but before we shift gears there, I'm just curious, the, the journey that you're describing um, is one that all product leaders go through. Even more broadly than that, people in outside product deal with as well. People who are really trying to level up their game and contribute at a higher level are, are people who have to take on these conversations, these ways of thinking, et cetera. And I'm just curious, you know, what has helped you the most? Do you think like, you know, is there something that you wish you knew 20 years ago that would have, you know, made it easier or, or made you more effective along the way? What advice would you give your earlier self on this? It's, you know, for me, what I learned about myself is like, I want to solve the mystery. Like I was talking to, um, 
another person who does like product related, you know, talks and all these things. And he was really encouraging me to do, he's like, you you know, there's always, you know, people looking for women product leaders, you should develop your whole talks and all these things. And I'm like, that is not what gets me going. Like I actually agonize over doing talks. Like what I want Mm -hmm. to do is solve the mystery. I want to like understand like what's blocking a team? What's blocking a leader? What is blocking a leadership team? And I want to solve that mystery. That is how I like to spend my time. And I feel like if you don't have that level of, I don't know, persistence and care about that, if you bring, if you don't bring that to your job, right, you're solving the mystery of what is the right set of, you know, products or features that we need to introduce in the market that's going to help us win. If we, you know, how do we solve the mystery about who our customer is and what do they care about? How do I solve the mystery of how are we going to make effective decisions as a leadership team? If you don't want to solve those mysteries, you're going to get burned out and tired and frustrated really fast. And so that for me is just what energizes me. Like I want to figure it out. And so anyway, I, if I knew that about myself earlier, I think I would have not spent so much time thinking about like, oh, well, I should be doing this and other people, other people write a book or whatever. I, I don't care about that. I want to solve the mystery. That's what I like doing. Nice. Yeah, there, there's a tr- such tremendous power in knowing yourself. Reminds me of a, another episode of this show with a, uh, a fantastic woman named Laura Garnett who wrote a book called The Genius Habit. Are you, are you familiar with it? No, sounds cool. I mentioned it's just it's something that I've personally been working with over the last six to eight months or so. And, and it's proven to be a very, very useful uh, framework and approach for understanding myself better and understanding what are the kinds of challenges I thrive on. Like you're just describing, like you love that challenge of solving the mystery that gets you going, you dig it. And also the things that, you know, the ways of using my skills that are fulfilling to me. And so that's just a resource that I'll recommend to people to check out is the book is called The Genius Habit. Um, yeah, like so similar to you hearing you say like solve the mystery. I'm like, yep. For me, it's like, uh, I love figuring out, like figuring out that future. Like what's that good future and how do we build it? That's That's what gets me going and the way we're doing it, whether it's through a podcast, uh, helping people build a good future or uh, a product or whatever, that's, you know, similar kind of thing. So I enjoy that puzzle too. We're going to shift gears here and kind of close out with some rapid fire questions. Uh, they're short questions. Your answers can be as long as you want them to be. And, and often this opens up kind of interesting little uh, side tangents. So the first one is what is a quote or a saying that's important to you? And what about it speaks to you? So the one that most immediately comes to mind is, and I'm trying to remember how he said it, because I know this is a well-known quote. Um, it's basically like a dollar for you know identifying the problem, but like a thousand dollars for solving the problem. And this is like one of my very first um, bosses, Tom Burke, uh, at the Discovery Channel. And I, you know, I was like an intern out of college, and I was like you know, Tom, things are fucked up. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. And like, this is broken. And I don't understand this and this. And he was like, Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> great. You get a dollar for identifying these problems. You get a thousand dollars if you figure out a way to solve the problems. And so that's always <laughs> nice. Um, and then what is a question that if you could have the listener start to ask themselves one question on a regular basis, what question would you have them ask themselves? The listener? What, this list, like listener for your mm-hmm. podcast? Yeah. Person, okay. Listen to this right now. Ask themselves. Okay. Oh, gosh. On a regular basis. It's like, is this a good use of your time? Mm. Like, there's, and there's all different ways that people can spend their time. But I just feel like there's so many people. Like, I have a coaching client that is really in a tough situation. And like, it, it, he's just constantly being second guessed by 
his boss who's like really doubts him and he's doing everything right. Mm. And it's just not connecting. And I just feel like this is not a good use of your time. Like you should go, (laughs) just go. Um, And I feel like that's all we've got is our time and how we choose to spend it. And so like, I I think that's a good question that we can all ask ourselves. Mm. Love that. Yeah. I've, I've found myself getting increasingly allergic to things that occur as a waste of time to me more and more. So I, I would echo that, dear listener. Please, please think about that. Um, so at, at right now in this, whatever chapter you consider yourself to be in right now, what does success look like for you in this chapter? So part of it is, is like really having total autonomy and control over my time. In fact, like, um, somebody who actually ended up doing some work with, uh, was trying to hire for a role, like I had a product role and he and I were chatting about it and um, he was super excited about what was going on at his company. And he's like, I think you would like the people and this is, you know, it, it's really interesting. And I said, I can totally tell how excited you are about, you know, what you're doing here. But the thing that excites me most is figuring out like how to grow a business, have total control of what I spend my time doing and who I work with. And that's kind of what lights me up right now. And so I'm not done figuring that out. Yeah. Still working on that mystery. Yes. Another mystery to solve. But this one's, this one's been pretty fun. I like it. I like it. Then another one is who or what has had a big influence on you and shaped really shaped how you see things and how you show up? Hmm. I mean, I, I feel like there's a long list. So this is a tough one. I mean, maybe what I will do is actually give credit to my husband because he pushes me constantly and in a way that usually pushes me out of my comfort zone more yeah. than I like to do. Like he has very high expectations for himself, for us, for, uh, you know, for the way that we live, um, the way that we work and what we can contribute. And so he is constantly pushing me to expect more, more, you know, promote myself more, whatever, but like really do more than you think you're capable of doing. And so, um, and I can't get away from him. So I, <laughs> I, I am, I am constantly reminded that there's more that could be done. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Last one we'll close out with is if, you know, what small change have you made in recent memory that has had a big impact? You know, recent memory could be a week. It could be a year. Small change, outsized impact. So, okay. So I told you that we got a puppy, which maybe that's a big change. I don't know if that's a small oh, or big change, no, no, but the dog is tiny. So it feels yeah, like a small change. Okay. Kid. Yeah, I know. I guess I didn't quite think about it that way. So maybe this doesn't qualify as a small change, but it, it, I literally thought that I was doing this for my son to basically get him off my back for like not, you know, the only one of my friends who doesn't have a pet and whatever. But it has been so wonderful for, for our whole family. Like, and my older son, um, I, I may mention this, he has ADHD and he is so much more engaged and involved and spending time like with the dog. And I could see this like nurturing side. I've got two boys. I'm the only, mm. you know, girl until we got this girl dog in my household. And I've just seen this like really huge, like caring, naturing, like nurturing side of my boys. And it's been um, like a a really pleasant surprise. So I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Well, Hope, what would you like to leave the listener with? Oh, I should have a good answer to this question. I don't know. I just, you know, people should do what gives them purpose and fulfillment. And I feel like there's a lot of people, um, especially in products, like I think it can be a great 
job. I think it's a really hard job. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. And you're going to be encountering those a lot if you take on this job, um, at least for, I don't know, maybe another decade. I don't know how long it's going to take for that to be as sort of straightforward as finance or something else. So if you're not loving it, figure out what aspects you love, because there's a lot of subspecialties emerging to fill all the gaps, you know, whether it be product marketing, whether it be product operations, whether it be you know, enabling like internal or external communications around product changes. Like there's so many subspecialties within it. So just, you know, find the thing that feels like it's a good use of your time and do that. And uh, just in closing out, do you have any requests of the listener? Requests? I mean, if you want to uh, learn more about product, I guess I'll plug my own podcast, which is Fearless Product Leadership. It's like, you know, the, my... um if you do listen to it, I'd totally appreciate knowing that you listened to it and what you got out of it. Anytime somebody says they listened to it, I'm like, okay, what did you like about it? Or what yeah. did you get out of it? Why what was it useful, useful to you? Yeah. Yes, what was useful? Because it's like, I need that to to keep producing, keep producing the episodes. But in it, I, I try to do something slightly different from what you're doing, which is take a tough problem, like how do you measure success as a, pro- how, are, how are you measured as a product leader? Or how do you gain alignment or should people sell features before they exist and get five perspectives from senior product leaders on that tough challenge. And so it's a different format and uh, it's been a super fun to produce. Yeah. Well, I, I will also echo that. It's one of my, my go-to product podcasts. I really like it. I'll say what I find useful about it is, hey, in, please. Um, is actually that format. The fact that you, you've done a really nice job of reading the minds of product people and, and like knowing what are these big meaty questions that we encounter and then bringing together and synthesizing information from a lot of smart people around those questions has been very, very useful to me, like as a format, because I love a good interview, obviously, but there are those moments where I'm more interested in the point solution to a specific thing. Yeah. And that's where I find it so useful to be like, okay, it's like a little council of product elders who will teach me what what I'm about to F up. <laughs> yeah. I love it because sometimes they're very similar. And thank you for for saying that and appreciating it. Um, sometimes they're all very similar. And I'm like, okay, there's a pattern here. Good. And other times <laughs> they've got totally different approaches. And then you're kind of like, okay, which one do I feel like best fits the situation? But yeah. either way, you walk away with hopefully something actionable. And if anybody wants to check out uh, your work or connect with you, which you're up to in the world, where's the best place for them to reach out? They could go to fearless-product.com. They could find me on Twitter at Hope Gur, which means you have to remember how many R's it is. I think it's three. I don't actually know. Um, or LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I'm pretty easy to find if people want to chat. Awesome. Well, Hope, thanks so much for spending time with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been so fun. Thanks, Andrew, for thinking of me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.